Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that we could gather this day, not the Lord's Day, but a day that the church recognizes and sets aside and says this is a day to remember, to remember this act, this sacrificial act of suffering that brought about our salvation. Father, we pray that your spirit, who dwells within us, who meets with us corporately, would lead us. Lead us in all understanding. Lead us in all conviction. Lead us to the path of righteousness that comes out of a heart of gratitude for the completed work of Jesus Christ, Son of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this evening's message is entitled, Everyone Testifies Something About the Christ. And when we think of that, uh, the, the words, the Christ, I'm not referencing a personal name, but rather a title. You might understand it better if I were to expound and say that it, it carries with it the fuller meaning of God's anointed king and deliverer. And whether we say Christ or Messiah, both those mean and carry that meaning. This evening we will take the time to reflect on the response of the enemies of Christ himself and we'll compare them to our own responses in life. As you take a look at your bulletin, you'll see that rather than being on the back of the bulletin, uh, the uh, actual outline for the sermon for the message is in the midsection of the bulletin. And we've done that uh, to make it easier for you to follow. We've grouped the enemies of God, and you can see what each one testifies. And so we'll be jumping around a little bit to grab the scriptures that are identified with each group. Our challenge today is what does your, and I might say my life, testify about the Christ? If we all testify, even the enemies of God testify by way of their lives or their words who the Christ is, then how much more do our lives testify and what is it that they testify to in regards to Christ's identity? Now, before we get in and look at the, each of these uh, five groupings, and four of them are groups of people, one is an an object, it's the cross itself. But before we look at them, we have to know that what John is doing here through the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he's, he's dealing with the, the immediate context as easy to understand in just the simple reading of it. But he's also carrying an undercurrent of irony as this account plays out. We see the irony that Jesus' enemies actually testify accurately to his identity, though they do it unwittingly. There's another level of irony. There's a personal ap application sense of irony in that we also unwittingly sometimes, most of the time I hope, testify the words, the attitudes of the enemies of God 
through our own fallenness. Even though we are believers, we are not perfected. We are being perfected. So as we walk through this, rather than look at the enemies and say, oh, how, th- how could they? Maybe this will be a time of conviction on this day when we realize that it is our own sins that put Christ on the cross. Certainly, in context, it was the immediate group in front of them, but we know from the, the, the truth of the totality of Scripture that it's all of us. It's all who, who come after Adam and Eve. It's all of our sins that place Christ on the cross. So with that, let us start with this group known as the soldiers and how they mockingly testify. In verse 1 through 3, it says this, And then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. If you had the, the King James Version, it would say scourged him. And the idea is being severely beaten by whipping of the back of the individual, tearing the flesh incredibly so. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Where would they get such a purple robe? This is a battalion of soldiers. This is a large group of soldiers. And in their midst would be the highest of the esteemed officers who would be easily identified by the purple caped or robed attire that they would wear. They need only take one of those and they use that to drape it around the shoulders of Jesus to mock, not to esteem him, but to make fun of him. They came up to him saying, Hail! Sometimes we don't understand that word. That word, hail, as spoken particularly by a soldier, is a form of greeting or engaging the highest of those esteemed in rank, in particular, the highest in rank, with a greeting of, a, of enthusiasm and loyalty. There is no enthusiasm or loyalty on behalf of the soldiers. This is an utter mocking of Christ. Hail, the king of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. The idea is that they, they slapped him in the face. We can see the utter contempt of the soldiers for Jesus as a king. They see him as somebody who is incredibly weak and someone to be pitied or pitiable, not worthy of the honor and respect that a a king should command through strength and power. They only see weakness. Jesus, in their eyes, is unworthy of honor and respect. Now, as it relates to us, as we compare ourselves to the soldiers, when we sin, unfortunately, we also disrespect and honor our king's standing of authority over us. We mock him when we sin. We don't always realize it. We don't want to much like Paul said he didn't want to in Romans, but we do. And when we look at this and see the parallel to to this mocking, we can be disgusted and overwhelmed by the, 
the, the wrongness, if you will, of what the soldiers in, are doing. And hopefully this imagery will help us as we walk the future and we realize that we don't want to come across as those that mock the authority and standing of our king. Well, we now turn to Pilate as our second grouping. He's an individual. He spitefully testifies. And as we look at Pilate, you need to know that there is a power struggle going on between he and this Jewish nation underneath his rule within the nation of Rome in this geographic area. And they are a sore to him. They are a pain to him. They are difficult. And there is a power struggle back and forth. And you can see it. And in verse 5, we read, So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Pilate is putting forth Jesus as only a man. He's putting forth Jesus as not a king, not worthy of that title. He is pointing to Jesus in the midst of the, of the nation that he, he represents as a delusional man who thinks he, he is a king and has no power. He has no army. He is a pitiable and pathetic king to a weak nation. And you can see that what he is doing, is Pilate is spitefully putting Jesus out to say, this is your king. This is who you are as a people, you nation. This, this nation. In verse 14, it says, now it was the day of preparation and, and preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He, Pilate, said to the Jews, not behold the man, but behold your king. Again, a shot across the bow. This is all you've got for a king? Again, you are a pathetic and pitiable nation. You try and back me into a corner and have me do your dirty work? You want my hands bloodied because you won't do it? You are a weak nation, unable to take care of the dealings of the nation on your own. He's, Pilate is putting it back in their face. In this setting, Jesus is nothing more than a pawn. They want to, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, want to demonstrate their authority over Jesus, and in some way force the government so they don't have to do the dirty work to take care of Jesus and remove him. And Pilate sees him as a pawn to, to put them down and to mock them and to, to, to show the spite he has and the contempt he has for this nation that gives him troubles. Sometimes we don't deal with our Christianity in, in such as this exact scenario. Ours is not a power struggle with God or with the people around us. But rather, ours can be a, a struggle of acceptance. We can use Christ as merely a pawn. We can be quick to name him in circles we know 
Christians occupy? Oh, I'm a Christian. But we dare not cite the name of our king in circles we know that if we speak out, we will be the outcast. We will be the oddball. We will be the one that is the nut amongst the, those that are knowing better than what any religion, any crutch could bring a, as an understanding of reality or, or authority within a culture. And so there were times when Jesus is simply a pawn in our lives to seek acceptance within our circles and to never speak of him or speak of him in hushed whispers around those that we know would be hostile to us and our relationships with them. The third group are the chief priests and the officers who testify with malicious treason. We read in verse 6a, when the chief priests, and when it speaks of the chief priests, it's speaking of those priests that are in higher standing than the other priests. They have more authority, and that is key to this group of people. When the chief priests and the officers, the officers of the temple, those officers that have authority to oversee the ongoings of the temple, we see those in authority over the religion itself and those in authority over the institution of their religion seen or manifested through the temple itself. Authority is an issue. And what do these who have authority say? When they saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And then in verse 15b, it says, the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. It's true. The Jews who are supposed to be the people of God, those in power and authority, those who are given the authority to bring about the submission of the people by way of the understanding brought to them of the covenant of God, they break the covenant. They treasonously break the covenant with malice. Not only would you say they want him expelled, oh, they go much further. They want him executed. They want him forever removed. They will have no authority over them. It's interesting to note this church obviously has pastors and deacons, as a biblical church should. Those are in positions of authority. But this church is somewhat unique from my upbringing within other Christian church constructs, maybe to say, and that this church works by way of congregational governance. That means that it's not just the deacons, it's not just the elders that are our leaders and governors. You, the people, also govern and have authority by way of vote. So we have to ask ourselves, do we, are we tempted when we vote on whatever it might be, to vote what we want, to vote what we think is right, over what we should know would bring honor and glory 
and give authority to God. We see churches, I don't, I don't see us doing this, but we see churches saying, it is nicer to accept this area of sin than to try and say that this is wrong. Our culture is bowing to that left and right. God forbid us if we as a church ever take our authority and governance that God has given his bride, the church, and misuse it for something we believe is right over that which God has already stated. He has authority and he has given us the truth. Lastly, we see in these groupings of people, the Jews. The Jews in general are referred to here. So it includes the leadership. The Jews accusingly testify in verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, this is their inner attorney working here. We all have this inner attorney that says that we have this right to defend our position. Listen to their inner attorney coming out. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Partially right. He didn't make himself the son of God. He is the self-existent son of God. He always has been and always will be the son of God. Amen and amen. And in verse 15a, it reads, They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! You realize that they will not declare Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They see Jesus as lying. They want nothing to do with this liar that is trying to put himself above them and somehow blasphemously accuse or or blasphemously declare himself as the Son of God. And yet all the miracles he has demonstrated that he is in fact the Son of God. All of the teachings that connect him with what the prophet said would come by way of the Son of God have proven accurate. And yet they will not listen to those revealed promises to be accurate. Do you realize that when we are in the midst of a difficult situation, we are tempted to say, how could you, God? What did I do to deserve this? Why this? Why this? God, this isn't right. Or maybe in the midst of his trial, we don't stand on the promises of Christ to get us through the trial. He has declared that he takes us through the storm, not around the storm, and he does so for the purpose of shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. So when we say, how can this be? God is not, this cannot be good. This cannot be right. We are saying God is not in control. God is not ruling and reigning. He is not a king, and he is not a God, and he is not the son of God that is seated by by his father in heaven, ruling and reigning. That ought to convict us. We never directly say those words, but we can say those inadvertently by the words we use when we almost seem to accuse God of doing something wrong or not treating us the way we deserve. Let's take a look finally at the cross itself. 
The cross itself is, a, is simply an object. It's, it is personified in the scriptures. We see that over and over again. And so with that understanding, we see the cross as, if you will, giving it uh, personal attributes. It is indifferent as it relates to or testifies to the death that will be Christ's end. Let's read this in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all, that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Christ, the anointed, I might say the God-anointed king and deliverer, is dead. The cross is a man-made instrument of execution, of excruciating pain, and it has killed the Savior. The cross cares not who lays on it, all who lay on it will die. That's the indifference of the cross. The cross is the end to life for any human being. But is the cross only an instrument of death? Listen to Genesis 50-20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring, about it, to bring it about that many of the people should be kept alive as they are today. As we look at the cross, what Satan intended as an instrument of death of the Christ, of God's anointed king and deliverer, was actually meant for good. There is, a, there is an irony here. We know that the many that are saved are those today that have repented of their sin, they recognize it as sin, and they are in need of a Savior if they are to obtain salvation, if they are to attain an eternal relationship with the King himself, if they are to have their sins paid for, they need to recognize and repent of which this room, from my knowledge, vastly is bent in that direction. All that I know that are seated here have done just that. And to that we say, praise God, we believe, we trust in the promise and the power of Jesus Christ. You see, this, the irony isn't lost on the church. Ever wondered why the church named this day of Jesus' death Good Friday? Because the church understands that God is in the business of repurposing evil, the evil of men and even the evil of Satan himself, who uses men like puppets and just strings, holding the men to do that which is evil, what he wants accomplished. God still used the greatest of evil, the murder of the Son of God, to bring about salvation. 
It's not only a point of time salvation, where once we repent and believe, we are saved for, eternal, for, for eternity, but this salvation continues on that we don't. The sin does not have the power over us so that we don't have to mock our king. We don't have to use him as a pawn of acceptance. We don't have to accuse him that he can't be in control. He's just a mere man because the situation I'm facing is too difficult. No, because of the salvation and the continuing work of sanctification, we can be freed from that. We have the hope that is in the power of what Christ did in the cross and through his death. And Pastor Pete will teach what was accomplished in resurrection on Sunday in two days. We have the opportunity, rather than me close in a time of prayer, which is how we typically close our sermons, we the people, we this congregation, we the church, are going to sing forth, we're going to proclaim God's wonderful repurposing of the cross for the good of his people with the hymn that we will now sing together with, through Sean's leadership.